listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. Thank you for listening. The Infinite Smile Sangha is made possible by the generosity of friends, members, and people who have been touched by this teaching. Please visit our donations page at infinitesmile.org to help us continue our efforts in spreading the Dharma. I had one of those weekends where conversation surrounding um, teacher-student relationships seemed to abound. It was very interesting. This, this, I'm sure you've experienced kind of the synchronicity when suddenly something comes up and then comes up again and then comes up again. And this is exactly kind of what was uh, what was going down um, this weekend, quite remarkably. Uh, I had a, a conversation with one person on Saturday, Saturday morning who was uncomfortable with um, aspects of his spiritual journey that involved having a teacher. He was very interested in not having a teacher, but rather being in kind of a, a leaderless sangha scenario. It felt much more comfortable. It felt, you know, like no one was taking charge. And for those of us living in the 21st century, especially those of us who had any type of connection with the eradication of hierarchy that occurred in the late 60s and 70s and so forth, especially in relationship to faith, this is very natural. It's very understandable. I understand it. I've felt that way myself. Anyway, the the conversation was really quite quite wonderful in many ways. Uh, listening to this person kind of articulate his view and the idea that the only way for spirituality to work, according to this guy's opinion, was for there to be no hierarchy that there should be absolutely no hierarchy. <coughs> and I thought this was, this was very, very interesting, especially since I'd had that experience myself. I'd been involved in a, in a sangha that had had no hierarchy, that it was just the Dharma being shared, and everyone spoke of their personal experiences, and through that mechanism, we would somehow, you know, find deeper meaning. Um, the problem with someone saying, <laughs> see, there is a hierarchy. <laughs> I mean, who, who's the bald guy up front, man? There's a deer. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. I was, if you don't like gardens. <laughs> Unless you're really attached to your garden and then they're not so beautiful. They're like giant pests. Anyway, so the idea then of uh, no hierarchy, isn't that in and of itself a hierarchy? If you say there is no hierarchy, that's the establishment of a hierarchy. In logic, we call that a performative contradiction. I, of course, didn't bring this up, 
because I wanted the person to feel like they were heard, not contested. That's kind of the job uh, of a teacher, to, just to make sure the, the person feels heard. And then when you know they're ready, slap them, you know. But uh, <laughs> it was very clear he didn't want to get slapped. He wanted to slap me, but I was on the other end of the phone, so it wasn't going to work. But uh, anyway, this is quite remarkable. And I felt quite freeing for him to be able to kind of, you know, throw this out there. And uh, I wish him the best. <laughs> uh, my experience with the leaderless approach, while it brought me very close to individuals, this is very early on in my, my practice, uh, I felt like it brought me closer to individuals. It did amazing um, it did an amazing job at derailing the intensity of the work because all of the work was about somehow strengthening the story. All the work was about somehow making, um, uh, making myself okay, making myself sound okay when I spoke to the group, making myself uh, better, making myself anything, instead of actually having the uh, intensity that a teacher coupled with a teaching and a sangha can offer, we were going with two of the three. No teacher, let's work with the teaching as best we understand it, and then we'll have a group, and we'll, we'll lead ourselves. And what started to unfold, what started to be revealed in this process was there wasn't any buddy home. In fact, the Dharma became, I look back on it now, and as noble as the attempts were, it, uh, it did some fairly significant, uh, like I said, derailing, even damage, because it allowed the ego to manage the entire experience. And so while I can understand if, if you feel, if it feels weird, you know, having some, some guy sit up in front who's not carrying the, any lineage to speak of, who is just kind of spouting off each week. I really understand that. I am not the only game in town, and I'm most certainly not going to enlighten you. No one will. Okay? Having said that, if I don't work for you, and this is something that's interesting to you, if this is something that is moving you, Find someone, find some group, find some teaching, those three prongs, if you will, to this attack. Find something that resonates. Find something that you do feel comfortable with, where you can actually let go of what you know. The minute you can do that, you're golden. I mean, you've always been golden, but, you know. It really invites the practice in. So tonight as we sit, see if you can let go of what you know. See if you can call into question with open curiosity everything. Everything. 
and fearlessly occupy that spaciousness. Don't flinch. Just be right there with whatever comes up. I'm always inspired. I talk about this a fair amount, but I'm always inspired just by the imagery of the Buddha sitting down in, in meditation, touching the ground, touches the ground with his right hand. I'm not moving. No flinching. Give me any temptation you want. Give me any vile thrust of ugliness. I'm not moving. I'm right here. Be right here. Be that stable. Nothing can knock you off your tukas. Even if you're sleepy, you'll catch yourself. Your neighbor might laugh. If I see you, I certainly will. <laughs> it's funny, you know. But don't let that, don't let that take you off your center. Don't let that remove your ability to open into what has no center and what has no circumference. What is you? Fully you. Rest there. I'll do my best to meet you there. I realize one of the things I left out of my kind of pre-sitting story was that the person I had spoken with who had been involved with the uh, leaderless sangha, she and I had sat together. <laughs> she told me, when I, was, when I was uncomfortable with the fact that it just didn't seem like it was really going anywhere, was overly personal and, you know, let's all get in touch with our emotions, but screw this enlightenment thing was kind of where it was going. Um, and and uh, she and I happened to be dating at the time. So, okay, so basically I was in this whole thing just so I could get some was pretty much why I was in this leaderless sangha. This, this, I'm just being honest with you, but so. So, so when I decided to kind of leave, I'm sorry if that was just more information than you needed, but when I decided to leave, uh, you know, she, she, you know, was, you're making a big mistake. Michael, you know, you're making a big mistake. It's like, you know, then it's my mistake to make and so forth. Anyway, in this conversation, we kind of, we reconnected after, after quite some time on uh, Facebook. And, uh, and uh, she mentioned, she goes, remember that conversation? And I'm like, yeah, I sure do. And she said, I've spent roughly 15 years undoing all of that stuff. And it was so fascinating, and, and we had a really, really neat conversation about it. And, and her point was just that it, uh, it took her um, into a space of, I, I've written about the, the ego trying to wear the Buddha's robe. And this is exactly what had happened to everybody in the Sangha. And then the power dynamic started to shift within this leaderless Sangha, because there's always somebody who tries to dominate, you know. And, and it, anyway, she kind of went through the dynamic that occurred and the evolution that she said 
was instead of something that evolved, it was something that deeply involved. And it just kept getting more and more locked and more and more bound. And they all became pretty good scholars of Buddhism. And that's about where it stopped. Anyway. Um, so there was, a, there was an article that corresponded to this uh, that I wanted to read to you guys. I'm going to read it word for word, even though uh, I've been advised against this because this um, uh, somehow me reading somebody else's prose doesn't, doesn't work so well, that the, that, the, that the talk needs to be more spontaneous. So what I'm going to do is ask that your hearing of this be very spontaneous. <laughs> All you do is really offer us shortcuts, said the student. I thought this was a pretty nice compliment. It's pretty much what we teachers do. We point students in the right direction. At least, that's the idea. None of us in the teaching role, however, can enlighten anybody. No one has that power. In fact, if someone tells you they can enlighten you, run for the hills, quickly. Sound familiar? I'm guessing. At our best, teachers offer up ways to speed the process and force the issue of awakening all of the time. On the other hand, people sometimes show up to hear me speak and tell me afterward that they are uncomfortable with the hierarchy that is at play. Me as teacher, them as student. Everyone is my teacher, they'll say. I don't need anyone to formally take on that role. Of course, they're right on both levels. There isn't anything in the universe that can't be counted as a teacher. But these seekers that aren't into hierarchy don't see the hierarchy that they've set up. In this case, that there is no hierarchy. Their egos are busy trying to manage their spiritual work, thus rendering both their seeking and what is sought tragically superficial. Then again, these folks aren't usually looking for enlightenment. Instead, they're looking to feel good about themselves and the people that they hang out with. The fact is that nobody needs a spiritual guide as they walk the path any more than someone might need to eat an amazing meal before they die. But if one wants to experience the expanse of, let's say, an amazing meal, and fast food has truly revealed its limitations, then there are two options. Either go to a restaurant for a temporary thrill, or learn to cook and establish an utterly new way of being in the world. I'm interested in showing people how to do the latter. Learning to cook, spiritually speaking, can happen in three ways. First, we can grow up in a family where, quote, good food, unquote, is continually served. Ideas, recipes, and flavor combinations are passed along and supported by tradition. Rarely, if ever, do we see ourselves as eating poorly, since cooking poorly goes against what has become a core value of who and what we think we're about. Second, we might go off on our own, struggling to establish a sense of what good eating might look like. Discovering satisfaction in this way can take a while. Trial and error isn't always comfortable. But the break from what we've known always offers these cooks new and exciting opportunities outside of their comfort zones. Third, there are people that are neither interested in learning to cook, nor do they care about eating well in the first place. This third version of eating works out just fine for much of humanity. Unconsciously, taking what's in front of them as it comes is just fine to them, and they spend little, if any, time wondering about other possibilities. But for anyone who has either accidentally 
or purposefully uncovered the grace and power of an amazing meal, it's very difficult to go back to slop and be happy about it. Since you are reading this article, you are either examining the spiritual flavors you're familiar with, or you're seeking to uncover something that tastes even better, or you're doing both. So here's the recipe, or what we might say, or, or, or we might say, here's the shortcut that I've seen work over these many years on the cushion. It's tried, true, and has withstood scrutiny by those who know how to crank out transcendent spiritual grandeur and mind-blowing simplicity all at once. <laughs> enlightenment, excuse me, enlightened living in the world, adapted. Get a life and ready it for frying. This would be you. Salt and pepper to taste. Other practitioners. Two cup mixture of stillness and wonder. Same thing as practice. Two cups oil. Same thing as teaching. Skillet. Same thing as teacher. Soak life daily for 30 to 40 minutes each day in stillness and wonder mixture. Couple this soaking with a generous sprinkling of salt and pepper as this will deepen and enhance the flavor. Let the heat of surrender do its magic on the oil. Note, I recommend a well-seasoned cast iron skillet as the heat can be more evenly distributed. <laughs> Dip your life, now coated equally and repeatedly with stillness and wonder, into the hot pan and oil. Fearlessly cook your life until the skin comes off and ego is exposed and cooked through. <clears throat> but be sure to allow for some tenderness by not overcooking. Remove life from oil, pat dry, and place back in the world. Repeat this process in every moment. <laughs> Real spiritual work is about evolving from limitation into an expansive and inherently open place of freedom. This recipe works to help us see this opening. Integrating it comes with repeating, repeatedly repeating it again and again several times over and over. This is the shortcut to an enlightened life, made even shorter when all of these component pieces are of the best quality. Be keenly aware of this, as I'm continually reminded that practitioners who come from flawed teachings easily lose their way. This doesn't mean that seekers necessarily have to somehow connect with a tradition, nor does tradition equal quality. But more often than not, traditions or teachings that are closely aligned with traditions offer choices that enhance the outcome of this recipe. No doubt, even flawed teaching has the power to cook us. The problem is that bad ingredients always produce meals that taste bad, even though they might be advertised as being delicious. Poor results also will arise when I can see that an earnest practitioner has either had a bad teacher or even no teacher. Bad teachers can inflict lots of damage. The news is full of their stories of exploitation and deceit. It's heartbreaking. But then again, having no teacher at all, why not, while not as damaging outwardly, can still be subtly damaging, leaving us lost on the path. Under the guise of, everyone is my teacher, or I don't need anyone to formally take that role, egos begin to manage the spiritual journey by anointing themselves as the teacher. These flawed frying pans can always manage the temperature keeping it hot enough in order to claim progress along the path and cool enough not to damage its own ability to control the entire process. So, please choose your ingredients well. Get good equipment 
and have the courage to follow the recipe. Bon appetit. <laughs> I wrote that yesterday, thinking that, uh, I know I told you it was somebody else, I just didn't want you to get like weirded out on me or anything, because this can be like the most self-serving talk imaginable if you're not really clear what it's about. What it's about is not me. What it's about is not you. This is about the most important kind of meeting on this, in this process, which is where you feel like you can trust not only the teaching, the oil, so to speak, but also the teacher, the skillet, and that you can trust the process that everything working together, or Sangha, actually creates an open container that allows for evolution to flourish. And it's probably no surprise that this was very difficult, actually, for me. I didn't, I don't like, um, I was raised in a, a marvelous home. Uh, uh, and there were, there was structure and there were rules and so forth. But uh, I was taught in a real healthy way to make sure you really question authority. Doesn't mean always rebel against it, it just means really question. Question where it's coming from, how it's manifesting. And I thought this was really quite a good teaching. Um, and employing this kind of questioning on the path is the work of the practitioner. I mean, I always, always tell you guys from this perch question, every single thing that I say, every single thing that you read, every, that actually opens all this up and it forces the quality into our process. It's when we begin not to question. It's when we begin to kind of get a little lazy that everything kind of starts to stop. It starts to stagnate in its own way. And so if you, you're finding that you're stagnating a little bit in your practice, or that you've kind of hit that, you know, that wall that we are destined to hit as practitioners, it's really helpful to talk. It's helpful to read another book sometimes. It's helpful to make sure you, you know, really, really turn the heat up on your practice. So it's just a little encouragement. Bon appetit. <laughs>
my, not only the teaching, but also in actually as, as a practitioner, on some level, faith is what inspires a surrendered belief that something, someone else has done this before, which allows me to do it too, right? So faith is a form of, uh, it's, it's a belief that carries this limited self and gives it an invitation to experience bigger self because others have done it before, okay? Then, what was the other? Surrender. Surrender is what, you, what faith can inspire. More often than not, however, and surrender is utterly this pure, I mean, that, that's actually what heats up the, what heats up the oil. <laughs> okay? The, the surrender is, it's not about becoming a renunciate as much as it's about absolutely letting go. And in that letting go, that can be inspired by faith. More often than not, however, faith, instead of inspiring surrender, brings about deeper clinging. I have faith because it says, well, that's not faith. That's just belief. Okay? Faith is actually, you know, it turns you into a gambler. You know? Spiritually speaking. And help me with the third one. Trust. Trust. Okay. And so what, what, what trust, trust and faith are really really similar, um, except trust usually has a little less surrender mixed in with it. Okay? So in other words, if I trust something or trust some process or trust myself, I'm, I, my odds are, um, are tighter. It's, this, this is going to happen. Faith still is slightly, it, it, it has this availability to it, this openness, okay, in the way that I'm explaining it, um, which is, I, I, have, I have faith in something, it's, I believe that this will probably happen, whereas you rarely hear somebody say, I trust that this will, might occur. You trust it, it's, it's more, it's, it's a little bit more contracted. So we're, what we're talking about here are, degree, are, are degrees of, of surrender mixed in with these two uh, component pieces, faith and then trust. So it's like this, like an ice cream cone, the bottom of the ice cream cone, you, uh, you have trust that's, that's inspiring. You then have, excuse me, you have surrender that's inspiring, trust, and then up a little higher would be faith. And at the at the at the end of that, where the actual ice cream is, I knew I'd get to food. When you get to where the, the ice cream actually is, what do you have there? Ice cream. <laughs> that actually that actually is complete complete surrender. And in that space of complete surrender, there is no faith. There is no trust because we're actually beyond that. The we itself or the I itself or the me and mine, all, all of that has kind of given way to just the there's ultimate. No surrender in, from moment to moment, there's just, it's just surrender. R 
Right. Surrender, surrender, surrender is not surrendered. It just is. This goes back to that, that point of uh, awakening looks beautiful in other people. The qualities are utter beauty and so forth when you see awakening in others, but awakening itself has no qualities. Mm -hmm. It's the same thing with that kind of, and that's essentially what we're talking about at that level. So there's no surrendering to be done? There's no surrender. It's, it's surrend in surrender, there's no surrendering to be, to be done because there is no longer a doer. Mm -hmm. There's no longer a truster or a faither. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I love words. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you able to give us a word we can type in Google and have access to that? Yes. Love. Oh, what I read? Oh, no, no, no. no it's, just, it's just on my computer. Yeah. It's, it hasn't gotten out there yet. Yeah. It'll get out there to hopefully sooner than later. We're putting another book together. So what we're going to try to do is that that'll, that'll, uh, that'll be in there. There's a certain person I'd love to share it with. You what, tell you what. Why don't uh, see? I'll give it to you. Yeah, I'll give it, I'll give it to you. Now, however, no, don't try to publish it. Okay. I just want to show it. Bring it back next Monday. Okay. No, you can keep it. I trust you. I have faith. You can trust me. All right. I'll surrender. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So if I understand you, if I understood you correctly, if you... Uh, You are utterly free of preferences at that level. At that level of surrender, the, there is no preference, which is actually a really fascinating measure uh, for us each on the path. How much do our preferences still rule us? Isn't it? Yeah. So once again, maybe, maybe the way you can measure enlightenment as it arises in your experience is how much less you crave a certain flavor. If you go into, I, I'm totally BSing you right now, but still, it's, it's a, it's, it, is, it is a fascinating, fa there's nothing quite like ice cream when it comes to people's preferences. And preferences point us directly into where we're clinging, where our attachments are. And damn, chocolate chip, I'm sorry, it's it for me. But it's not it for everybody. And so to, to, to begin to recognize kind of having an, an opening to different, different flavors and so forth, when we begin to let go of that, um, it's, it's as if the transformation was exactly like what it was for any of you who went from only liking cocktail weenies and cheese for dinner as a six-year-old to suddenly 
really getting into foie gras and really, you know, your palate suddenly just explodes. And that's exactly, we really are on a food kick tonight, aren't we? This is pretty interesting. I tried to, but there is, there is that, that transformative nature to our experience at some point. And now some people are still into the, you know, the, the weenies and cheese. There's nothing wrong with that. And there's nothing wrong with, you know, anybody who just said, that's what I am. This is what I do. I have no interest in that. That's fine. And they can still awaken through that attachment. There's another angle on this too, uh, which is that some people on some kind of a spiritual path are trying to surrender with strong faith that once they have surrendered, they will be rewarded with something with the ice cream flavor that they expect. Exactly. There, so so let's, let's unpack this a little bit because that's really well said. People expect if they have faith, there's going to be a reward in some future moment of the kind of ice cream that they want. And then maybe we'll have an endless supply, right? The, the problem with that entire model is that what it does is it takes the practitioner out of the present moment. They're living for some future salvation. And whenever we are not in the present moment, awakening is veiled from our sight. We have just taken, uh, we, 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 we have just lost sight of the shortcut. That's all. And that's all, once again, back to this whole idea of teaching. The teacher is just a shortcut. The teacher, the teaching, the song, these are just shortcuts to awakening. Every one of us is going to eventually surrender and give up at the moment of our death. You know, no matter how hard we try to hang on to it, it's going to take us. So with that in mind, how are we going to live generously? You know, and doing that in the present moment keeps us from believing that some future ice cream reward will happen. Thank you. Yeah. Garrett, your hand is up, yeah. Uh, I want to continue the food metaphor, unfortunately. The, you know, unfortunately, we're just gonna, let's just stick with it, I'm, so. I just want to take a layer on top of that obsessive compulsive. Mm -hmm. Like so, a layer like a cake? Yeah, so mm -hmm. you've got the ice cream. Mm -hmm. Now I'm gonna put the cake there. Got it. Mm -hmm. But you said something, and I can't say it the way you said it, but I want to go back to, I surrendered to the cake and ice cream. Yeah. I'm screwed now. Mm -hmm. Because that's what's there, not the surrender. The cake and ice cream is what's there for you? Yeah, right. It's, you said, you didn't say, you said something, letting go isn't letting go. It's Letting go isn't pushing away. Yeah, there. Okay, letting go is not pushing away. Letting go is allowing. You push away the cake and the ice cream. You're, you're just not surrendering. No, you're attaching to it, actually. Okay, that's the point. Of, or that's the question. There, and now that's at the core of practice. Okay? The difference between letting go, which is allowing, and pushing away, which is attaching to not that. Okay? It's still attachment. It's the other side of the coin of attachment. And if we can flip that coin 
and just let it go and keep walking. Not worry about picking it up or figuring out which is heads or which is tails. If we can keep walking, we suddenly recognize that there is no body, there is no walking, there is no ground, there is the infinite, and it's us. That's okay. That's the design. Otherwise, you'd be attaching to it. Okay, so just let yourself, just let it flit through. Because pretty soon it's going to start melting away the things that get in your way of realizing it. Not hearing it and understanding it, but realizing it. And there's not, I mean, I'm not trying to sound metaphysical or anything. That's not it. It's just that that's the way the process works. We bring our, you know, deepest concern into this work, right? Mm -hmm. And when we bring our deepest concern into this work, we have the, the, uh, uh, the fuel necessary to, to keep this study of self alive. And then to go Zen on you, to study the self is to forget the self. And to forget the self is to be awakened by all things. And that's exactly where this takes us. When we start to, instead of pushing something away, we just go, huh, there it is. And with total lack of flinching, we stay with it. So it seems then that the original question, obsessive compulsive, is not even there then. It's just. It, it can't exist in that can't space. Exist in that you just are there with the ice cream and cake and you keep on walking. Exactly. And you also find that the ice cream and cake no longer really hold you. You're not caught by it. It's not caught by you. And we start small. I have a, a, a friend who's going through some huge transformations right now. He happens to be a Mormon. And, and the Zen thing to him is of interest at an intellectual level, but he's you know, really ensconced in, you know, in his tradition and everything. And one of his deals is this, this OCD thing, this, com this compulsive, the obsessive thoughts and then the compulsive act. And so the mindfulness training that uh, many Buddhist practices offer, kind of, he's been really interested in that. Um, he and I were, were eating breakfast together at Chow and sp uh, uh, he, he spilled some um, uh, uh, cream when he was trying to get it into his coffee mug. And he immediately reached for his, you know, for his towel to wipe it up. And I said, whoa, whoa hang on. And he went, oh, uh, okay, okay. And we had the rest of our conversation, hour-long conversation, with this mess that was driving him bats. Mm -hmm. But he didn't flinch. He didn't go into it. And afterwards, I said, how do you feel? And he goes, that was amazing. <laughs> I, I got to do that some more. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you do, pal. Watch, watch what, yes. Watch, watch what it does to your relationships. So you can have no. your cake and you don't have to eat it. Oh, I knew somebody was going to come. You can have your cake and eat it too, but you don't have to eat it. You can, but you don't have to eat it. Uh, yeah. Iris, yes. I have a question and then I'll get to the food. <laughs> Moment of a, of awakeness. Is that a word? Awakeness. 
You mean where they live their entire lives unconsciously? Sure. Sure. So now, I'm hanging around with a lot of people that are, as you know, um, closer to the near, to the end of their life mm -hmm. than the middle or the beginning. And I, and they bring them three little scoops of colored food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they bring them like soil and green almost. You know? mm -hmm. It's people, Red. by the way. Soil and green is people. I know. It's, I'm sorry. It's a, it's a <laughs> film joke. It, that's kind of what it makes me think of. And I look around and I see a community of people that are detached. And I started to just, a curious mind wondering, what is the benefit if at the end of their life they have that surrender? If, if, if it hasn't been, if it hasn't procreated or, or been shared, if what is the benefit? There, there, it's precisely only to their benefit. In other words, when we get to a place where the Alzheimer's is so, it's kicked in so much or where we are so uh, ensconced in this dementia or this surrender of, you know what, it could be weeks, I don't really care. Instead of an enlivening death, it's just death. It's slow, it's an insidious creep along a very dark path. If we can recognize what death really means before we get there, we're in really good shape because then we have something to offer. And the offering basically is it's all icing. It's all gravy. It's all, right? There's nothing, nothing left of us. We have let go totally. Live that. Thank you for coming tonight. Yeah.